Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 5th, 2018, and my guest is economist Edward Glazer. He is the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University. Ed has done extensive research on cities and many other topics. This is his third appearance on Econ Talk, the most recent being in April of 2013 to discuss the economics of cities. Our topic for today is an essay he wrote last year on the war on work, an analysis of public policy interventions in the labor market and the state of employment of uh, prime age folk, 25 to 54 generally. Ed, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me back, Russ. Now, you start off with a um, the following. I'm going to quote it and then uh, read a second quote. In 1967... 95% of prime age men between the ages of 25 and 54 worked. During the Great Recession, though, the share of jobless prime age males rose above 20%. And I interject and say, meaning that the number working fell from 95 to below 80. And back to the quote, even today, long after the recession officially ended, more than 15% of such men aren't working. And in some locations like Kentucky, the numbers are even higher. Fewer than 70% of men lacking any college education go to work every day in that state. It's kind of incredible, end of quote. And then you say, quote, the rise of joblessness, especially among men, is the great American domestic crisis of the 21st century. And I'd like you to defend that claim to start with and uh, say anything else you'd like to add in introduction about the facts Um and how you see this uh, since you wrote that essay, if anything's changed? So, uh, no, I don't think that anything has, has drastically changed. We've had a little bit of a recovery since the, the recession, certainly. Um, we focus on men rather than women, not because female joblessness isn't important, but it is somewhat more complicated. Uh, because, as we know, over the past 60 years, the share of women in the labor force has risen dramatically. Uh, and consequently, it's, it's you know, there are more often cases in which we think uh, a woman not being in the labor force is really something that's voluntarily and, you know, in many cases, quite benign. Um, but we have a fair amount of data that suggests that the lives of the jobless, particularly the lives of the long-run jobless, really are extraordinarily tough and in many cases much worse uh, than the lives of those who are working uh, and uh, earning a little bit less income. So if we look at life satisfaction, happiness, we look at divorce, we look at opioid use, uh, we look at disabilities of a variety of different forms, they are found disproportionately, wildly disproportionately among the ranks of, of the jobless. Now, in some cases, of course, as in the case of disability, often the it's the disability that's causing the joblessness, not the other way around. But it's hard not to think that you know, joblessness is a great source of misery uh, for many Americans. Um, you know, when you just think about what we want from life, thinking that we solve this by just giving people a little bit of extra money just feels completely wrong to me. Uh, that you know, for so many of us, you need a purpose in life. You need a sense that your, your time on this planet is being used for some general effect. The jobless lack that. And in some sense, that's why it's such a particularly tragic uh, outcome that so many Americans have ended up in the state of joblessness. You know, there's a story. I don't remember the source of it. I don't think I've told it, although I tell the story a lot. So I wonder if I've told it on Econ Talk before. If I have, I apologize to listeners who, who may have tired of it. But it's a story of a man who's who's imprisoned and his sentence is to, uh, among his tasks is to, uh, while in prison, is to turn a, a large giant crank um, at the end of the, his cell and he spends many hours a day turning this crank and when his sentence is ended uh, he's one of his, besides freedom he's excited to find out what he's been doing in turning that crank, has he been generating power for the prison, you know, what's the, been the point of it and he asks and they say, oh it's not connected to anything it's just, <laughs> you know, and, and in many ways that makes the punishment so much worse and why that is is a, an important 
human phenomenon. Um, I, I'd like to, we'll get back into this issue of, of meaning in life. I don't, it's a weird thing that we should get meaning from our work solely, uh, but I think it's increasingly the case and for two reasons. I think meaning elsewhere is harder for many to find. And secondly, uh, many of the jobs that we have now have more opportunity for self-expression and a chance to change the world. Um, one thing I want to clarify that I'd like you to clarify is when we're talking about joblessness, we're not exactly talking about unemployed people. I think a lot of people think, well, what's the problem? Unemployment's really low. Explain the difference between joblessness and unemployment technically. Technically. So unemployment means that you lack a job but are actively looking for work. You say that you actually want a job. Um, that's at this point in time, uh, less than a third of those people that we qualify as jobless. Uh, the remainder are people who have left the labor force entirely, meaning that they say they are no longer interested in employment. Now, that distinction is real in an empirical sense, right, in the sense that the those who have left the labor force, you know, look different along lots of different dimensions than those people who are uh, who are who are not uh, who are unemployed. But uh, sort of from an economist conceptual point, right? Uh, you know, everyone is willing to take a job. It's just the question as to what's the price of it. At least that's how that's how we tend to think, right? So uh, maybe those who are not in the labor force have a higher reservation wage, as we would say in our our uh, econ world. Maybe they require a larger wage to get them out of joblessness, um, but all of this group is is fundamentally lacking employment, and presumably for the right wage, they would they would enter uh, the job market and start working. And one other quote I want to read to start with because I think this is a key part of the story. Joblessness is disproportionately a condition of the poorly educated. While 72% of college graduates over the age of 25 have jobs, only 41% of high school dropouts are working. I'm going to read that again. Only 41% of high school dropouts are working. The employment rate gap between the most and least educated workers has widened from about 6% in 1977 to almost 15% today. The regional variation is also enormous. Kentucky's 23% male jobless rate leads the nation. In Iowa, the rate is under 10%. There's a bunch of different statistics in there. I want to just unpack that for a minute. Um, First, when you say 41% of high school dropouts are working, uh, is that is that 41% over the age of 25? That's, that's that. So I've gotten better on those numbers. So those numbers are right, uh, but they're they're somewhat misleading because they include everyone over the age of 25. So that's going to include all the retirees as well. So usually I prefer to focus on the 25 to 55 uh, year old gap, uh, year, year old uh, age group where the gap is somewhat smaller. But those those numbers are particularly dramatic. And it's precisely because you've got retirement in there as well. And just to make it clear for the um, data oriented folks uh, and those who might not be data oriented, the fact that the there's been an increase in the size of the 65 and over population, and I assume that they are disproportionately not college educated, at least for a while, is also going to distort that gap a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when you say the gap is the, the employment rate gap between the most and least educated, uh, when you say 6%, do you mean six percentage points or 6%? Oh, I think I almost assuredly mean six percentage points. I do too. So no, why is it only 15% uh, today? I, Given that it's in the in the number that um, that you it started that quote from, it looks like it's thirty one points seventy two versus forty one. So I think I think what that paragraph unfortunately does is it combines uh, a fact that's true for the overall uh, over twenty five with the fact with my preferred way of presenting the facts, which is between twenty five and uh, fifty five. Okay, so which is the latter? The the six percent, fifteen percent is that in the 25 to 54 group? That's right. The smaller one is going to be the, the, okay. the 25 to 55. But it's still, it's a big gap. And then, um, so it's regional. It, it's, it differs by region. It differs by education. Uh, what's going on? What, what, are, what do we think? Uh, and, and it's important. The reason I, I'm glad you focus on 25 to 54, a lot of the numbers are going to be distorted by the fact that the baby boomers are coming through the, are starting to retire, and uh, that's going to change. The size of that cohort is going to change uh, the proportion that's working over 25 uh, just through the demographic change, not through any 
thing going on in the economy necessarily. So when you, if we look at the tw- – let's, so let's, until further notice, let's focus on the 25 to 54, 25 to 55, which is called typically prime age. Uh, yeah, don't you find that offensive, though? We just I think we want to be on record as saying that, that saying the prime age stops at 55 is offensive. Well, it's it's, our, uh, it reminds me of meat and the USDA, um, <laughs> but uh, that is one problem. Your second point is excellent. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I'm 63. I don't know how you are, how old you are, Ed. I'm, I'm 50, but oh, you're still you're still in your prime. But it's only a few years left. I'm I'm past my prime, past my I'm not past my expiration date though. That only happens I think when you outlive your expected life expectancy, which I which I haven't got to yet. But um, so humor aside, which I appreciate, uh, we're going to focus until further notice on prime age folk, uh, typically which means 25 to 54, 25 to 55 people who we'd normally expect to work, or at least people who in the past have overwhelmingly been working and now much less so. Why? What What do we understand as the possible causes? So uh, I think that the two primary uh, potential culprits are labor demand and labor supply. So the labor demand view is that once upon a time, America had an abundant amount of demand for uh, men who were strong, but perhaps not particularly well-educated in terms of formal schooling. They worked in factories. They worked in coal mines. Uh, they made this country run. They made this country great. Uh, and over the course of the past 50 years, uh, the demand for less well-educated men have has plummeted, and, and consequently, their relative wages have certainly gone down. Over some decades, even their absolute wage has gone down, meaning wages correcting for inflation have gone down. Um, And that's one part of the story. And some of the geography lines up with that. When you use things like industrial shares to say, you know, were you in, in, in a region that had industries that have particularly lost employment? Are you more likely to be jobless? The answer certainly is yes. Were you in uh, a location where people were particularly, where your industries were particularly exposed to global competition in a variety of different ways? Are you more likely to be jobless? And the answer is yes. Um, so that's one part of the equation. But there's a second part of this equation, which is the labor supply part. And that has to do with, with you know, what kind of a wage you require to work. Uh, and I think there are, you know, at least two different stories, one which I probably think is slightly more important for why the labor supply of, of these workers has also crunched in, has also diminished. And uh, the main story for that is that we've made joblessness less awful, right? We have benefit programs like disability insurance that actually make it possible to be uh, to be jobless and to survive. In many cases, when you look at the fi- financials of jobless America, they are living in a household where the income is not totally unreasonable, in part because they've got a working spouse or in many cases because they're living on their parents' sofas or in their old bedroom, right? So they have a source of income. Uh, it's just not their. It's just not their own. So the cost of being jobless, which you know could have hundred years ago would have meant staring at the possibility of st- starvation. Those costs have gone down, um, and at the same time, uh, the costs of working because of public benefits uh, being tied to how much you earn. Those costs of, of working have have gone up, and so that's skewed. That's pulled back. The, the labor supply. Now, uh, there's one other story which I think, you know, we can associate maybe with Charles Murray, uh, which is maybe a, a decrease in the soft skills needed to hold a job uh, in certain parts of America. And I think that's much harder to quantify. Um, the, the discussion uh, around hillbilly elegy, for example, was very much around this, around sort of not having the emotional makeup to go to go to work and behave well for 35 hours a week. I don't know fully how to quantify that. But the the other two, the labor demand uh, being pulled back at the same time, we see labor supply being pulled back both because we have a more generous welfare system and more generous relatives. And we have a certain number of benefits which scale down when you earn more. Just a reaction, just a comment on the demand side. Uh, people will often say that, you know, in 1950, a high school graduate was middle class and they could get a job manufacturing or construction and, and, le- and have a dis- decent living. And it's clearly the case that having a high school education only today, or worse, being a high school dropout, uh, is not as economically uh, viable as it was in 1950. 
And I, when, I, when I think about that, though, my first thought is in 1900, uh, if you were a blacksmith, you were probably had a good, made a good living. Uh, but very soon, soon after 1900, being a blacksmith was not a good occupation, and we don't consider that a problem. We don't say, you know, it's a shame. It used to be you could make a good living as a blacksmith. Now you can't. We'd say, well, that's because we innovated. People innovated. They developed cars. Horses were less useful. Blacksmiths were less in demand, and people learned very quickly that instead of becoming a blacksmith, you'd have to become something else. And it wasn't really a crisis. Uh, for somebody who'd been a blacksmith for a long time and who struggled to acquire a new skill, it was there was genuine hardship there, but we generally would say that's okay. And so the question is, what has, has changed? And I think the simple answer is that if high school doesn't pay anymore as much as it used to, and if that happens quickly, uh, it's hard for people and the economy, the infrastructure of, of economy and the networking that connects people with jobs doesn't have time to respond maybe as well. Do you see any difference between how creative destruction affected the labor market, say, in 1900 or 1940 or 1960 and the way it does today? Why does it seem so much harder for people to adjust to the changes in, say, labor demand in response to globalization or other uh, changes that reduce the demand, say, for relatively less educated people? So that's a great question. Uh, I think there are a number of different explanations. Uh, so one of which is that if you think about the, the changes in 1900, 1910, uh, there were a number of entrepreneurs, capitalists, innovators who were well incentivized to figure out how to employ various forms of labor that had become redundant whether or not that was because of mechanization in the agricultural sector or uh, the fact that the blacksmiths were going out of, out of business. But, you know, Henry Ford, uh, Sloan over at uh, GM, they wanted less skilled labor. They were willing to pay $5 an hour for it, uh, $5 a day for it, excuse me. Um, and they wanted to, you know, uh, you know, get those workers doing stuff for them. One of the things that's changed is that whereas Henry Ford innovated in a way that provided tens, hundreds of thousands of jobs for less skilled Americans, um, they just needed to learn his skills and follow his rules. Um, Bill Gates innovates in a way that employs disproportionately high-skilled software engineers. Right? And that's true for much of the great entrepreneurs, great innovators of the last 30 years. Not all of them. Uber certainly is a, you know, is a less skilled labor skewed in innovation. Even Amazon does does a bit of that, too. Yeah, quite but a bit, the, I think. The, absolutely. But the changing nature of innovation has meant that there's more of a complementarity between skilled workers and other skilled workers rather than between skilled workers and, and unskilled workers. Um, and in some sense, that's I often say that sort of every non-employed American is a failure of entrepreneurial imagination. Um, and uh, I think their imagination is failing just because the returns for innovating for the skilled are, are so much higher. That's, that's one aspect. A second aspect is the regional differences. And here we really do see a difference, right? Um, until 1992, between 1950 and 1992, the inter-county migration rate, meaning the share of Americans who moved across county borders in every year, right, was never less than 6%, meaning more than 6 in 100 Americans changed counties every year. Over the past 10 years, right, since 2007, it has never been above 4%, okay? There was a steady decline from 92 to 2007 and sort of stayed low since then. Um, this is a, a point that... Um, has been emphasized by a number of researchers. I particularly want to highlight the work of, of Peter Ganong and Danny Shoag thinking about these these factors. And they've also shown that the nature of migration has changed, which is that prior to 1960, people moved to higher income areas. So the farmers moved to Detroit, they moved to Chicago, they moved to the Okies in the Great Depression, moved to California. So there's this migration to high income areas. We've seen much less of that over the last 30 years, particularly for less skilled Americans. There's very little that's directed towards high income areas. Um, and one possible explanation for this is that this has to do with the restrictions that we put on housing markets in these areas that, you know, yes, you could find work in Silicon Valley if you're a less skilled person working in you know, a variety of service industries. Um, but you're going to have to pay for housing in that area. And, you know, the overall deal doesn't look particularly good when you're kind of happy sitting there at, at home in Kentucky. So um, this migration has really shut down dramatically. And that's that's a second change. Yeah, I, I'm I love that story as an economist. Right. It's a good story. <laughs> Uh, I, I worry about how much evidence we have for it. It's true that it's gotten more expensive to live in cities, right? 
uh, because of how – in certain cities anyway, not all cities, right? So that's the one problem with that story is that it's, it's certainly true in New York City. It's certainly true in San Francisco. I suspect it's true in Boston. Seattle, I'm not so sure about. Less true in Houston. Less true in lots of other medium-sized American cities. And it's strange that those cities can't attract, don't attract – Etc. The the people who would normally be attracted to that opportunity relative to what they have at home, where they are now. Uh, the other issue, of course, is that wages can adjust in those cities if if there were a large supply of folks working. If, if there was demand for those workers, they they, they would be the wages would ha- compensate for the higher housing uh, costs, and yet they don't, uh, or at least partially compensate, somewhat compensate, but certainly relative to what the opportunities are for a person living in rural Ohio or Kentucky, where things are not so good, you'd think they'd want to try to move to Cincinnati or Cleveland, which are, again, not having big housing booms. Right. Well, uh, Cl- Cleveland, in fact, has a is a you know depressed city in the in the you know which which has its own joblessness problems. I mean, the geography of joblessness is very much centered in what we are calling the eastern heartland of the U.S., which is a swath which starts down in Louisiana and Mississippi and then runs through Appalachia up through Ohio and and Pennsylvania. But your point that there are medium sized cities that you know are less expensive is certainly true. Uh, Texas, for example, remains relatively affordable. Uh, I think in terms of the the housing price point, I I feel entirely confident that there is something wrong in the fact that for the first time in American history, we are not making it easy to move into the most economically successful parts of America. That, you know, if we think about the farmers who moved west in 1820 to the far more rich soil of the Ohio River Valley or of of Iowa, right, nothing was holding them back in terms of getting together with the neighbors and raising a barn and, and settling down. If you think about the people coming to the tenements of New York or Chicago in 1900, nothing was standing in their way. Now, you know, you come to Silicon Valley and you face one of the more, most restrictive housing markets in the country. And I think that's a policy problem. That being said, uh, part of me also agrees with you. I don't think that that's all of the problem at all. Um, and it certainly doesn't explain why, you know, in much of the post-war era, we had this remarkable income convergence that came in part from the poorer parts of America catching up. So states like, you know, if you take Mississippi, Mississippi is the poorest state in the, the Union today. It was the poorest state in the Union in 1950. In 1950, there were 18 other states that had double the income of Mississippi. Today, there's not a single state in the Union with double with a per capita income that's double that in Mississippi because it has caught up. And it caught up partially because of out-migration, but also because of in-migration in of businesses of capital. And uh, there's just much less interest in doing that uh, in terms of moving to low-cost uh, low areas in terms of, of capital uh, migration. And often when capital migrates, it just doesn't employ a lot of bodies anymore. Uh, when you look at Appalachian coal production over the last 30, 40 years, it's not that the coal production was substantially off, at least at least up until maybe five or 10 years ago, uh, but it had become a far less labor-intensive uh, occupation. And that's what we've seen in a lot of manufacturing and mining industries as well, is a, a tendency to use machines, not, not to use the machines and the people, but to use the machines instead of the people. So one response to that, you sometimes hear... I, I, I'm going to reject it, and then I'm going to try to make a case for it, and then you can respond. One story here is, well, people don't like to move. You know, they, They're used to their family or they're used to the culture around them, and, uh, or maybe they're used to navigating the welfare system where they live is another version of this. not as attractive a story, but it could be true, and they don't want to move. The problem with that story is that that was true in 1950, too, as well, and people moved like like. A lot more often. <laughs> uh, so that you have to really – just a, a side note, methodologically, when, when you want to explain something that's changed, you have to have something that has, also has changed. can't be enough just to point to the phenomenon. You have to explain why it's gotten larger or smaller. And I, so I think that's true. I think it's it, – I, I, mean, I think it's false. I don't think it's true that it's that much harder socially to move, culturally to move. What I think is true potentially, and this is what I worry more about, is that – it's all well and good to say that wages are higher in in Pittsburgh than they are in rural Pennsylvania or in uh, Silicon Valley than they are in, say, small-town California. The problem is whether the people who live in those rural small towns have the skills that would allow them to earn anything close to what the average is in the cities. And this comes back to a, an issue we've talked about a few times here on the program, which I find extremely interesting, and I want to move to that in our conversation and get your reaction to it, which is 
Do people in cities make more because the cities make them more productive, that there's this synergy? Or do they make more because the people who happen to move to cities are different from the people who don't? And so if it's the latter, then it's not surprising that people don't move. They don't have the skill set to thrive. It's not the cost of housing. It's that the demand for their skills is not so much higher in a city than it is where they are. And so there really isn't that much return. So, so there, there are three types of evidence on the urban wage premium. I think we should also be conceptually clear about uh, two ways of thinking about the urban wage premium. So one way of thinking about the urban wage premium is just the straight nominal fact that people in cities earn more regular dollars. Um, uh, the second of which is the, the real urban wage premium, meaning the dollars corrected for the local cost of living. Um, the first, the nominal wage premium is – it's self-interesting because if firms are paying more for workers, we as economists naturally infer it's because the workers have to have a mar- higher marginal product, have to be more productive in cities. And so it's interesting, but of course, it, it doesn't tell you that you should go to cities, right? Or it doesn't tell you you're going to hi- earn a higher real wage. You need to be focused on the second number, which is the real wage premium, if you want to understand uh, migration and migration uh, or lack of migration to cities. Um, the second thing that we need to focus on is the three different ways we have of thinking about data on measuring the urban wage premium. The the first and most naive way is simply to compare urban workers with rural workers and control for observable attributes on this. Uh, That makes causes very little difference uh, whether or not you control for these individual attributes. Um, It leaves it still large, but as you say, the urban wage premium can very much be driven by, you know, workers in cities being innately smarter. Certainly, you know, New Yorkers would like to have you believe that. Uh, The the third, uh, so the second piece of evidence we have is looking at migrants. So this is comparing people's wages before and after they move to the city. Uh, I think I sort of began this literature 25 years ago with a paper called Cities and Skills. Uh, but there's a much better paper on this by uh, De La Roca and Diego Puga using administrative Spanish data, uh, which shows that people who come to cities experience faster wage growth when they're there. So it's not that you come to the city and you immediately experience the full wage burst. What happens is that once you show up in the city year by year, month by month, you experience faster wage growth. And then you typically take that away from when you away with you if you move to another city. Now, that certainly points to the view that cities are forges of human capital, places that we get smart by being around other smart people. But you could still make the case that I'm, I'm only going to come to the city when I know I'm in a particularly fertile time in my life in which I expect to see lots of uh, wage growth. And so even this is biased. And so if you if you aren't going to believe the, the, the results that control for individual fixed effects basically are controlling before and after for these workers, um, you've got to go to the much more limited number of studies where we have, let's say, immigrants to Sweden being facing programs where they, they randomize where the refugees get settled within Sweden. And there you also see significant effects of place. But we're relatively limited in terms of the experimental evidence that we have for moving people around, uh, but we do have a little bit of it. But that's the only, if you really wanted to make sure that none of it is is reflecting omitted individual characteristics, you'd have to have experiments where you really put person A in place A and person B in place B, and, you know, it was completely random. Yeah, I want want to just throw a bone to the cultural story, which I think is worth taking seriously. It it just adds to the complication, trying to measure these things accurately. But, you know, we as economists tend to assume as a starting place, at least something close to perfect information. We assume that a rural Ohio out of work, uh, Rust Belt denizen knows that there are more opportunities in the city and, and, and should move there, um, or could move there. And of course, they may not know, um, or they may know, but they may be anxious about it. They may think it won't work for me. And to sort of cut between the two hypotheses, if you know someone in a city who's moved and done well, you're probably much more likely to move there yourself. So if you don't have a – what would we call it? Um, a cultural network of folks, quote, like you. And that could mean like you in cultural ways, uh, meaning rural. Or it could mean like you in skill ways uh, who don't have uh, the abilities that maybe the people who mostly live in that city already have, and you don't have them, and so you're anxious either culturally about fitting in or, or economically about whether it'll pay off to move there, uh, you won't have the likelihood of moving that you might have had if you have those connections. But it seems to me we have more ability to find folks like us in those cities than we used to, and you think that would work in the opposite direction? 
You might. Certainly the evidence for chain migration, which is one version of what you're, what you're saying, where you know one migrant to an area then talks with people at, at home and convinces them to come. The evidence for that is overwhelming. In fact, you know, J.D. Vance and Hillbelly Elegy even talks about his, how his urban community was disproportionately populated with people from the same region of, of Appalachia. Um, you know, when we want to unpack, for example, the you know, great you know, the great decades of migration in the U.S., there are a couple of things that are going on there, one of which, of course, is the mass exodus of African-Americans north, which often occurred through chain migration, often occurred if I'm one person knowing knowing the other and trying to find some opportunity outside of the Jim Crow South. Um, and uh, also the even the move to the Sun Belt. I mean, think about how many people sort of retire to Hilton Head or retire to, to Florida but want to be with people who are their, their friends. Again, these social ties are are important. You were you were big on on how technology has made that easier to find someone, and I guess there's some truth to that. But uh, I suspect that that even looking at the Facebook friends of people from distressed communities, you're, they're not going to have too many people who have upped and moved to Silicon Valley and can tell them how great it is. Another way you think you could measure this would be you'd look for people who tried and gave up, and came back. Do we have any evidence on those kind of folks? You know, who moved to the big city found it overwhelming or unproductive and went back to their home region? So there, there is a fair amount of evidence of the on the birds of passage in the Great Migration North, so uh, reverse migration to the south. Uh, uh, afterwards, there's a, there's a fair amount on that, so people who came north between 50 and 70 and then returned back home after then. There's also a lively literature on the European immigrants who came to the U.S., and many of them went back to Europe multiple times, uh, sometimes for short stretches, sometimes for long stretches. So uh, that often occurs. And of course, the world of developing world urbanization is full of people who leave their families behind and come to work for six months, for nine months in an, in an urban area during the off season from planting. Let's turn to the opioid crisis. Uh, a lot of people want to put the uh, main causal mechanism for why uh, we have an addiction uh, phenomenon and, or at least a big use phenomenon with associated tragic consequences, um, tens of thousands of people dying from overdoses, is because of it. it's driven by economic despair. We've had Angus Deaton on the program to talk about this and, uh, and others. Uh, Sam Quinone's book, Dreamland, we talked about with Sam. And there is um, – some evidence for this, but we don't seem to know how much. Do you have thoughts on that? So it is certainly true that if you look at the geography of opioid uh, use and opioid deaths, once again, the eastern heartland uh, stands out, right? Once again, this ridge of a ridge of America uh, running just, just east of the Atlantic coast, but not as far west as, as the Mississippi uh, stands out as being ground zero for this. The eastern heartland is also the area where uh, the fact that Anne Case and Angus identified of the reversal in gains on male mortality has been most prevalent. The eastern heartland are the places in which men are, are dying more, and opioids obviously uh, play a role in this. I think it's very hard to uh, ascri ascribe a single cause to this. Across counties, I've done a little bit of work with David Cutler, where we find the share of the population on disability in 1990 is a very good predictor of subsequent uh, opioid uh, use and, and uh, mortality. Um, there are, of course, multiple explanations for this. It can be the engagement with, can be pure physical pain. It can be engagement with the medical system. It can be uh, economic blight. The one thing I do, I do think is pretty clear, though, is that I would... Uh, economic desperation isn't, you know, is different or, or it, it, the focus on ec economic desperation focuses, says sort of too much about income inequality and things that, that don't seem to me to be as powerful as joblessness for explaining this behavior, um, which is if you're working a 40 hour job and you're earning $23,000 a year or something that's fairly low, uh, you may feel pretty desperate. But you pretty much know that if you start using opioids, you're going to be getting yourself into lots more trouble, right? You're going to risk losing that job. You're going to risk having things go for the, go for, from bad to worse. So uh, the people who are on the economic margins would seem to me to be far less people at risk than the people who are genuinely jobless, who are just looking to fill up an ocean of time and, you know, and hopelessness. So, again, I think it's sort of important to, to take whatever, whatever share we think is going from the economic desperation – uh, I think it almost surely is more associated with not working than it is with working for lower wages. But as you pointed out and uh, talked 
we talked with Eric Hurst about this. Um, again, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. I, at least I have trouble wrapping my head around it. I think we know a little bit about what's going on. A lot of folks who are not working aren't struggling to fill up the time. They're living at home. They sleep late. They play video games, supposedly. Um, I I really don't know. I'd, I'd really like to know about the point you mentioned earlier about the resources available. Uh, disability, which has – we talked about this with David Otter on Econ Talk. Disability has become much easier to get, and that could be because it's a response to the fact that it's harder for people to find jobs. We don't know which way causality runs there. But it's not terribly generous. Um, it, it's not like it replaces most of what you earned. And, and yes, there are other people who have their parents to fall back on. There are people who, as you say, um, might rely on their spouse's income. But the number of two fam, uh, two earner households has gone down since 1980, contrary to what I think most people think. Most people think, oh, we're more women working, true. More wives working, true. But there's a lot fewer marriages. So it's, it's I think, harder for people to rely on a spouse. Uh, I'm wondering how the, the folks who don't have a job, what are they getting by on? So in terms of our, our data, and I can refer you to uh, – I'm presenting uh, a, a new paper called Saving the Heartland, which is joint with Ben Austin and Larry Summers at the Brookings panel this Thursday. And um, that paper should be on the Brookings website after after Thursday. Um, in our and this, this episode will air – after that, so listeners can go back and find it. We'll put a link up to it. Okay. Um, so, in in our data, we have uh, in terms of the share of prime aged men, um, we have in in our sample from the what used to be the current population survey. Now it's the annual so- social and economic supplement from census data. We have eighteen point six percent of men who are jobless in our our sample. Of this, only two point eight percentage points of the total population are people who are living alone. The other 15.8% are living with somebody else, okay? um, which means that even though their individual income, so uh, if you're living with someone else, your individual income is $8,219, uh, and of that, more than 50% is from disability. Now, this doesn't mean that every one of those, those right. people, and those are a lot. That's 10.1% of the male population, long-term, jobless, living with others. So you know, the bulk of their thing is from disability, but many of them are not getting disability. And their total family income is over $40,000 because they've got someone else with them who is – now, they're not married. That's certainly true. But you know, a significant fraction are living with the, with the parents. A significant fraction of them have some other person that they figured out how to, how to get by with, and they're, and they're living off of that. Or at least that's what the ASIC tells us. Now, the people who, who seem to live really dire lives are, let's say, if you take the long-term jobless who are living alone, that's 1.8% of the male population in our sample. And of them – you know, their family incomes are, are $12,500 and 9800 of those dollars are coming from government support and 7300 are coming from disability. I want to, I want you to go over those again because I got, I got a little lost in the proportions. Sure. Uh, first, in your sample, mm-hmm. 80% of what are what? <laughs> 18.6% of prime age men are jobless in this sample. Okay, so – and how does that – so that's – uh, it's a little high, but we've got – because of this, the sparse nature of the ASEC, of the annual social and economic supplement, we're pooling the 2010 to 2015 surveys. So you're getting, uh, you're getting some remaining of, of the Great Recession. That's why and you're also, you're also getting some folks who might be – are they jobless all the way through the whole thing? No, it's an annual survey. It's not right. a panel. So, so when you say 18 percent, you mean over the course of the panel? That's at, right. At one, in one year of the panel? The average, on average, if you take the whole panel pool together, 18.6% of the respondents are jobless. Okay. Are jobless when, though? At the point in time in which they've been surveyed. Okay. So in some years it could be higher, some years a little lower, but it's about – Correct. Okay. Correct. So that's, that's a big number. Big number. Now, within the jobless population, tell me about the resources they have and how many of them live – with uh, I just got confused in your narrative about what's in the denominator. All right, so we're going to do a two by two split of the jobless. Okay, living alone, living with others, jobless less than twelve months, jobless more than twelve months. Okay, okay. So we've got eighteen point six percent of men to parcel out, and so the percents I'm going to give you are of the entire male population, not of the not of the jobless. Got it. Okay. So living alone, short term jobless, that's one percent of men. 
wow. So, so it's just shocking in a way because you think of it as this jobless, they're moping around, they got nothing to do, but you're saying of the entire, this is the prime age again, right? So 1% of the prime age male population is jobless and living alone. Jobless less than 12 months, remember? Less than 12 months. Less than 12 months. Sorry. Over, over 12 months living alone, that's another 1.8% of men. Okay. So the total living alone share is 2.8%. Okay. Still small. Okay. Now, less than 12 months living with others, 5.7%. Okay. Which leaves you more than 12 months unemployed, more than 12%, sorry, more than 12 months non-employed. So this is a lot of these people will have left the labor force entirely. Uh, living with others, that's 10.1% of men during these years. Which is a little more than half of the jobless folks in your sample. It's by far the largest category right. and more than half, yes. So so let's look at that group. So this is jobless prime age men living with others, Yeah. right? What are they living on? Oh, excuse me, what's their household income? How much of it's from government transfers and how much of it's from a partner or spouse? 40, their or family roommate. averaged over this entire period is $42,000. And of that, uh, $8,000 is coming from themselves. So so 34,000 is coming from someone else in the family. And the 8,000 isn't earnings because they don't have any. They don't have any waste. They have no, excuse me, they have no measured earnings that that they could have under the table earnings. Correct. Correct. Although they are, of course, supposed to tell ASIC about all of their earnings, legal and illegal. But we do think that people might underreport illegal earnings. Yeah. or they might report them and just not report them to the IRS, thinking it's two different things. Uh, I could imagine both. Uh, it is important to mention that disabled does not formally mean can't work. It means something more complicated than that. So people who are formally disabled, they can't work legally and maintain their disability payments. But they can, right? Is it 100 percent implicit marginal uh, tax? It's, it's a small – it's 100 percent – well, it's, it's much more than 100 percent after I – mean, you lose your disability payments once you get off over the threshold. So there's a very mild threshold once you get over it. So the tax is enormous. The implicit right. tax of disability is enormous. Okay. So what you're telling me is that the prime age male population is living in circumstances where their income – over half of the folks in that group the amount they bring to the to the um, the bacon they bring home is is relatively small, dwarfed by the resources that come not just from the other member of the household. That's right, and in fact, it's much. Remember, living with others for less than twelve months is another five point seven percent of the population. Yeah. So only only two point eight percent of men are living alone and jobless, and that's the one share of the population that are you know not relying on the. Kindness of family members. So we don't know whether they're living with their parents or they're living with a spouse, do we? We do. We have. We have. I. I, I don't have this. Cut I know the yet. matrix is getting kind of large, but <laughs> the, ma- the matrix is getting large. A uh, uh, surprisingly large number are living with parents, and a surprisingly small number are living with a formal spouse. Hmm. So, so a chunk of this, a non-trivial chunk of this, is a change in cultural expectations that. Of, of what people in their 20s should be doing. So if they're living at home, I assume they're disproportionately young. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, their spouses are okay. For the ones who are married who aren't living with their parents, uh, their spouses are okay with them bringing in their disability check or not working and having the other spouse do most of the, most of the bring in most of the income. And these are men again. So I said spouse. These, these are men. These are all men. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, uh, the, the, the are they okay with it seems to be a debate. That's a strong. Sorry. Yeah. Remember, <laughs> the divorce rates also spike significantly for this population. Yeah. So clearly not all spouses are pleased with this turn of events. Yeah. Especially when we look at the, you know, the time use of the, the jobless, where, you know, if, if what you saw is that jobless men behaved like jobless women and were doing a lot in terms of home care, uh, that would be one thing. But the, the overwhelming, you know, time use is in watching television uh, in terms of the big uh, shift, not, uh, not in terms of taking care of the kids. Um, yeah. 
No, I think it's a bigger cultural phenomenon than just sharing um, household responsibilities equally. I think it has to do with what we think of as masculinity and what we think of as the appropriate role for men and women. And I'm not going to comment on whether that's good or bad, but they've changed. And they've changed a lot in the last 30, 40 years for sure, in the last 20 years probably. Uh, Last part about these data, and I want to move on to thoughts about what might be done. Um, These numbers are very different for college graduates versus non-college graduates. Uh, We talked about that at the beginning, and I assume that's true in your data as as well. Um, For some folks, this implies we just need to send more people to college. Uh, We recently had Brian Kaplan on the program talking about education as a signal rather than as a producer of human capital. It's obviously very relevant for this question of whether we should be encouraging more people to go to college. But uh, in the data, it w- many people who confuse correlation and causation would be inclined to conclude that, well, obviously, we just – the way to, quote, solve this problem, if you think it's a problem, is to get more people to go to college. What are your thoughts on that? So uh, I think I'm, I'm – I have some sympathy with Brian, uh, but also some uh, some disagreement. Um I do think that education is part of the solution, but education needs to do a much better job of providing skills that are actually valued in the labor force. So uh, if the view is we're just going to send everyone off to college and let them major in concentrations that have absolutely no value in the workforce, I don't see how that helps anything. Um, uh, If we're going to ask ourselves about how to rethink American education, particularly in the distressed areas, to provide skills that are actually valuable, and that may involve better community colleges in different ways that may involve alternatives to community colleges that may involve, you know, competitively sourced vocational training programs after school on the weekends. Um, I think we just need to recognize that skills are going to be at least some significant part of the answer to this. Uh, and we need to recognize that we don't have an easy answer in terms of skills. And I, I join Brian in the view that, you know, a simple minded approach, which says, oh, boy, if I could only get the college going rate up five percentage points, that would make everything better. That just seems completely wrong to me. Um, But I do think putting a fair amount of effort into trying to make sure that education is more productive and more widespread um, is is certainly likely to be part of the solution. Earlier, you mentioned that some of the technological innovation we've been seeing don't particularly help people with less education or low skills. And I I can remember whether you mentioned Amazon first and I emphasized it or I brought it up. But I've read stories recently that Amazon is – for obviously for economic reasons of all kinds is putting warehouses in places with low real estate values. Uh, You'd think that would be an attraction to find workforces that are relatively less employed. Um, I wonder how helpful that might be uh, as a way to reduce the geographic problems we were talking about earlier. And, and it is a way that at least some entrepreneurs are finding to, to use workers who are relatively in, in relatively less demand, uh, it, it seems hard to imagine that it could hurt. Uh, the, question is, the question is whether or not it's going to deliver anything meaningful beyond the few jobs in the warehouses. Right? Will this actually spin off related businesses in some form? And I think we we don't know about uh, we don't know about that. I mean, incidentally, I, I've you know this relates to the the bid for Amazon of different companies. I think it's always important when uh, cities and, and communities bid on businesses, they really need to ask themselves not how many jobs are being created in the short run, but whether or not this is going to create new business formation in the long run. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, now, a lot of what we're talking about is about today, but it also applies to tomorrow. And tomorrow is a world a lot of people are very scared about where technology and artificial intelligence, increasing use of AI and 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 computers is going to make even make it even harder for people with low skills and and less STEM like uh, majors to to thrive. Uh, you worried about that? A little bit. Um, I mean, like you, I also see plenty of upside in this sort of technological innovation. Um, I think it's going to require the smart to be slightly more social. Uh, and that's in some sense the the you know monster in the back of this room is that the, the sector that has that in the 1980s came and replaced manufacturing was of course services, especially for less skilled uh, Americans. Now services have had a, a less good 10 to 15 year track record than they had in the in the 80s, um, but 
services require social skills. And indeed, some of David Deming's recent work has shown that you know, if you look at wage growth over the last 15 years, even in the STEM intensive, the skill intensive occupations, the, the occupations that have done well are those that actually involve interpersonal interactions as well as being smart, not just being smart. And indeed, it's easier to imagine outsourcing to a computer something that just involves being smart. So um, I think that's likely to be true going forward as well, that those things that are invo involved, the interplay of sort of making use of our very human skills of communicating with each other, making each other feel comfortable, uh, uh, bringing joy to our fellow humans, those are likely to, to remain robust, whereas those that are you know, doing something that a computer can easily mimic are, are not. Incidentally, this is, I think, important in terms of the issue of particularly prime-age male joblessness, and it reminds us that, you know, schooling can't be all the answer. Um, one of the problems that 50-year-old men often have is they're not great at being nice to other people, and I say this particularly <laughs> as a 50-year-old man who knows of what he speaks. Uh, the curmudgeon effect. <laughs> the curmudgeon effect, which, you know, you can get away with if you're a skilled, you know, worker at a factory for 30 years or in a mine. You've been a curmudgeon. You've been a that's, – that's your – or in a in – a, in a, tenured academic job. But if all of a sudden you're now looking for a job in the service economy, being a curmudgeon isn't great. And so sort of, you know, thinking about how to make things work for the 50-year-olds is also a challenge. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know about this, um, the social thing. I go back and forth on whether it's um, going to be the, the way to the, the future or not. It, it does seem like being a human being is – the human side of human being is going to matter a lot more. But um, – just don't know yet how much people are going to be willing to pay for that. Uh, you might hope that because machines will make us so much more productive, we'll have a demand for human, the human touch that we maybe don't care so much about now. But when it's so much, uh, everything else is so much cheaper, may, maybe it'll be more attractive. I don't know. Um, well, I, I certainly can't claim to have an infallible crystal ball either. I, I think know. it's them. We, we, we opened – with this, you open with you raised the question early on about meaning in life. Um, a lot of people are pushing for universal basic income as a way to soften the blow of joblessness from technology if it is coming, if it is as bad as it as it might appear to be uh, for some. Uh, sounds like you're not a big fan of that solution. A world in which thirty percent, forty percent of America all lives on the on the dole is that a good world? Well, they wouldn't world? be living on the doll. They'd be living on the 70%. It's important to the, – we, you know, the doll always makes it sound like it's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from the, 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 40, right. the 60 to 70% who are working. For but. sure. For sure. But I think it's not just an issue of yes. I mean I, I'm less focused on the fact that we would have to – assuming that, we, that you and I were still among the working, uh, that we would have to pay for it than I am that this is just a uh, – you know, it's a horror for the 30%. It's not just that the 70% have to pay for it. I mean you're telling them they're, they're – you know – uh, their lives are not going to be ones of contribution. Their lives aren't going to be producing a product that anyone values, that they're just going to be taking a check from somewhere else. How in the world does that not lead to, lead to incredible social problems within the U.S.? How does that 30% not become, not, does not avoid becoming incredibly resentful uh, and hostile towards the 70% that write the checks? This is a, I think this is a horror story that has been dreamed up. And it's one that, you know, just suggests not the slightest knowledge of what human beings value in their lives. The idea that happiness involves just getting a check seems crazy to me. You know, I, I point out in an essay um, that if you, if you teach your students that utility maximization is – that the essence of economics and the essence of life is maximizing utility subject to an income constraint, you might tend to overemphasize the material relative to the non-material uh, we do tend with our focus on utility maximization, income, GDP, and I say this as an economist who also often has written on the fact that utility can conclude non-monetary things, of course, but we do tend to focus on the material, and our policy advice overwhelmingly focuses on the material. So I think you're, you and I are in a minority in worrying about, as economists, worrying about whether a world where 30% or 40% of Americans are, are not working is, um, might be a not-so-healthy place. I think that's right, but I, I think it's not very hard once you get people thinking about this and once you get people looking at the data of what the lives of the jobless are to, to move them in this, in this area. Um, the, you know, when, when you tell your students, when you talk to your students about this, 
right? When you talk to your students about utility and, and, you know, purpose in life, they don't immediately push back and say, oh, no, the point of my life is to maximize cash. I've never once had an undergraduate who said that was the right answer. I think, I think you're right. Our profession has done, has done some bad in terms of, of making it seem as if cash is the dominant thing in the world. It's an important part of the world, but it's, it's certainly not the dominant, certainly not a wise goal for, for unique maximization. Uh, yeah, I, I worry that we're different, you and me. Um, you and I are different in the following way. Uh, I don't play the lottery. Uh, I don't – I'm not going to ask you the personal question whether you play the lottery, Ed. But I don't play the lottery. And if I did play the lottery and I won, I think I'd still keep my job. Uh, I like my job. <laughs> I like what I'm doing. I like, it's a, I like talking to Ed Glazer on a, on a uh, Monday morning. It's a treat. So I think I'd still do econ talk if I were uh, filthy rich. And it – but maybe I'm different. Um, a lot of people at least think that they're playing the lottery so they can retire and leave, live a life of leisure. Uh, certainly, Aldous Huxley and Brave New World and others, other writers of fiction have tried to deal with the fact that people maybe aren't so eager to find meaning in their life. Uh, they're maybe happy to be on TV or Soma, the drug of Brave New World or whatever it is um, that – that uh, makes us forget or makes us high or whatever it is. What do you think? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, it seems like these, these people who, as we said, are, you know, they're living with a, some other person in their house. They've got, you know, it's not that they're starving. The family income is 42,000. If they're in the, in the long-term jobless or over 60 in the short-term jobless. Uh, and yet their self-reported life satisfaction is pretty low. Their suicide rates are pretty high. Um, it's hard. It's hard to look at the data and be convinced that that the Huxley vision was particularly sensible. Now, maybe, and I've heard this line from Silicon Valley. Maybe we could restructure society in some kind of way that gives people ways to contribute to the world, even when they're not working, enables them to do so in a way that's more pleasant than their old jobs. I just have no faith that America will be able to pull that off. Uh, I have no faith in our, I mean, as an economist, I certainly, I believe that culture matters, but I certainly have no idea how to change culture. Um, whereas if you're going to work every day, it's, it's not just that you, you're doing something that someone's likely to be giving you some positive feedback for, but you're also surrounded by your mates. You're surrounded by people around you who give you some sense of, you know, social connection. And that's also part of what, why a job, having a job really matters. Yeah. You do that in a different way though. If you don't have a job, you go, um, you're root for your football team. Your um, your bowling buddies, lots of different ways outside of work. I think to find those things, and I I sympathize with your concern that we could redesign society. I think that'd be a mistake. And of course, introducing a universal basic income is a very dramatic way to try to redesign society. Um, but if we went that way, uh, there'd be a lot of things that would be set into motion. Uh, I would think religion would would find some innovative ways to reach out to folks. And of course, YouTube does that every day. Um, uh, that's what the opioid crisis is partly about. We don't know how much, but certainly lots of things come into play. I think, I think it's just really hard to know how much people care about quote contributing. I, you know, you and I may have it as a, we may see it as a noble cause that we're contributing. We're doing something that produces value. Other people may see that as a kind of a, uh, neurosis. You know, why well, do you care? Remember that. So there's a bit of there's a bit of truth to that. But I mean, remember, it's not necessarily that you're going to work in a fast food restaurant. and You're feeling, boy, I'm contributing to the world. It's more that you've got people around you who are telling you you're okay. If you're not getting fired and you're doing reasonably well, you're getting some positive feedback from your boss. Maybe you're even getting some positive feedback from your customers if you're kind of good at being in a service in a service job. Let me just give you a fact though about you know so the socializing of the jobless. So there is a category in the time use surveys called socializing. And I'm just going to take those people living in the, you know, in the eastern heartland, uh, since I've split, split them up into different regions. The, the jobless have uh, an extra 360 minutes a day that they've made available by not going to work. Okay, How much of that is allocated towards socializing? 20 minutes. So it's, it's, a, it's a very small share of their extra time they're spending with other human beings, as opposed to, of course, the 160-odd minutes that they're spending extra watching television. Yeah, I think actually that 
it cuts both ways, obviously. Um, I, I just wonder, it's, again, we're in a particular cultural moment where uh, people are somewhat content to spend time with their screens um, relative to human beings. I, I do think there'll be something of a pendulum swing back toward being around human beings. You see that in many ways. Just to, just to make clear what I meant about utility maximization and the material world, in theory, most economic models that we teach our students and that and that we use assume that your satisfaction, your utility is the same whether you earn your income or whether it's a check from the government. And I think that's – I agree with you 100 percent. I think that's probably not true, uh, and I don't think we understand that very well, that it's how it's not true. And I think uh, sociologists, I don't know if they understand it pretty well, but that's that's what they should, I think – in theory, that's what they should be doing. I don't know if we should be doing it, but we clearly don't, uh, I think, understand that difference. And I think we ought to think about it. Uh, I want to close with uh, licensing. I've had a couple of guests recently talking about uh, the harm from it and, and perhaps the potential benefits. Uh, recently, going back to sociology, uh, recent guest uh, Beth Redbird talked about that. Um, Talking about the possible benefits that it, it makes people aware of what opportunities are out there who might otherwise be unaware of, of occupational uh, options and, and ways to get into the field through education. I'm a skeptic about that work, but it's interesting. Maybe there's something to it. Uh, I've much more on the other side that I think licensing is a terrible barrier. Uh, where, where do you – what are your thoughts on that and what we might do? So, uh, I mean – I don't know how much you're going to buy these regressions, but certainly in our Brookings paper, we have a couple of regional regressions where one of our controls is the share of the workforce that's licensed at the local level. Uh, we've done this, I think, both at the states and at the public use microsample area. And certainly we find more licensing and more licensed workforces associated with more joblessness. Um, again, I have no magic bullet in terms of causal inference on this. I don't have some randomized treatment that does this. There are lots of stories that you can tell that suggest that this isn't causal. But it is certainly true across place that places where licensing is more prevalent, joblessness is higher. Do um, you have a magnitude you can share uh, with us, proximate? I, uh, oh, I, I wouldn't want to be on. Uh, you can take a look at it. I don't, I don't want to I, – I, I'm sorry. I don't, I, I don't want to be on the record of making a claim that could be off by an order of magnitude. <laughs> So, uh, Appreciate the honesty. There, it's, it's statistically significant in all of the past four decades. Um, so it's um, uh, so certainly, I think you know the map that I usually show is the occupational licensing of opticians, who are of course not the optometrists who actually look at your eyes and and uh, tell you what what prescription you need. Uh, they're the guys who actually tell you whether or not you should wear round glasses or or square glasses given your face shape. And the idea that, you know, this or many of our occupations need to be licensed seems absolutely crazy to me. Um, more generally, you know, I think it's outrageous in this country that we regulate the entrepreneurship of poor people so much more strictly than we regulate the entrepreneurship of rich people. Uh, if you want to start your Internet phenomenon in Cambridge or Palo Alto, you can, you know, get yourself to 50 million users with barely any regulatory oversight whatsoever. If you want to start a small grocery store that sells milk products, you have to walk through 17 permits uh, in in you know, many large large cities. Uh, this is crazy. And, you know, it certainly seems, I mean, the things that I would be pushing on along with education to be fighting for uh, more employment are reductions of various forms of regulatory barriers, including uh, occupational licensing, but also barriers to starting small businesses in different parts of the country. I, I'm particularly a fan of one-stop permitting. Uh, as being a way of sort of centralizing things and making sure you have a, a licensing official that can actually talk the language and connect with uh, the, the relevant populations. Um, I, you know, believe very strongly in rethinking the uh, the way that we've designed our, our social welfare programs that tax earnings in different ways. Disability, of course, is particularly strong, but, you know, Section 8 housing vouchers, uh, SNAP, food stamp uh, assistance, um, all come with implicit taxes of, of earnings that can easily get quite high. And, of course, on the other side, while I'd like to maybe cut back some of those, I'd like to ramp up uh, employment subsidies, maybe given to the worker, maybe given to the firm, but do it in a really obvious way that raises the, raises the effective wage, sort of an earned income tax credit on steroids. Other than just not subsidizing education generally, because you understand, as you agree with Brian and that Brian Kaplan, that not every educational experience is, is productive, uh, how would you improve education? 
I think on this, if we're focused specifically on the joblessness side, I would be focused on vocational training um, and, you know, uh, starting on the fact that we don't know exactly what works, setting up programs where you actually are going to be able to evaluate whether or not the program worked upon the point of graduation, doing things that are competitively sourced after school on summer, so not necessarily using the traditional uh, educational apparatus, but having alternative providers, uh, you know, teaching plumbers, carpenters, various service jobs, training, and then sort of seeing what happens. That's that's probably where I'm most excited and certainly healthy engagement with the private sector as well. My guest today has been Ed Glazer. Ed, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you for having me, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.